to episode 402 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined as always by Sam Miller. Today we continue our trek through the season preview podcasts, starting with the worst teams according to Pakoda projections, ending with the best teams. That brings us today to the Cincinnati Reds. Later in the show, Nick Wheatley-Schaller will talk to John Fay, the Reds beat writer for the Cincinnati Inquirer. Right now, Sam and I will talk to Craig Fearman, uh, who who has written for every publication you have heard of, including the Baseball Prospectus Annual, for which he wrote the Reds essay. Hey, Craig. Hey, what's going on? Uh, so we probably could have, at least in terms of, of new arrivals or acquisitions, we probably could have recorded this thing in, in late November and not missed a whole lot, it seems like. Uh, the Reds were, at least in terms of bringing new players in, pretty quiet this winter. I think you owe an apology to Skip Shoemaker's family. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's been a frustrating offseason. There's no question about it in terms of... Uh, Inactivity. The Homer Bailey signing was exciting, obviously, um, but still, I think all Reds fans would have hoped for a little more, uh, at least tweaking around the edges. Mm-hmm. And and you mentioned a lot of your essay is about homegrown starting pitching and how the Reds have historically struggled to develop it and lately have hit on almost all of their pitching prospects. And you talk about Bailey and you talk about uh, the fact that the problem with with pitching prospects is that at some point they become good pitchers and then they become expensive pitchers. In, and Bailey is one of those. And you you said something in your essay about how, you know, it's easy to imagine him receiving an offer of 100 million or more. Uh, and the Reds are sort of a small market team. Did it surprise you that they ponied up for Bailey when they did? It did surprise me. Uh, also, because there have been a lot of rumors just about some uh, acrimony between the player and the franchise. But I guess $105 million can, can cover up a lot of hurt feelings. I'm excited that they committed to him. I think that he, that's a, a fair price. And, and I was excited to see that he got more than $100 million because I think if you look closely at his numbers, and, and you guys have done this on the site, he's, a, he's somebody who's worth that. Where I think it becomes a problem is you've got him, Cueto, uh, and Latos. And those three probably can only afford to keep one more of them. So you have to make the right choice about which other one to give a big contract to. And then you have to hope and hope that the next wave, whether it's Singrani or Robert Stevenson, they continue to develop. And in my essay, I talked about how historically the Reds were just abysmal at developing these highly touted prospects into good players. Then in this last run, they've been exceptionally good. They've only had six pitchers in the Baseball America Top 100. Five of them have turned into really good major league players. That success rate is kind of unprecedented and fluky. Is it going to continue going forward? Well, it better uh, come close to it to be able to replace it because you can't afford Cueto, Latos, and Bailey all when they're at their peak or starting to decline. So before we get back to the present, I want to talk about the Reds' failures for so long. You have some really amazing fun facts. Your chapter is sort of a, um, you know, a, a tremendous accomplishment in fun fact 
generation, in my opinion. Uh, and my two favorite fun facts about the the Reds' um, uh, inability to develop pitchers are that from uh, I think it's 1991 to 2009, uh, they had one homegrown starter produce a two WAR or better season. One season, he one pitcher produced one season uh, in that entire basically two decade stretch. Which is astounding, and the other thing is in in some year, like 2003 or something like that, uh, in the entire major leagues, there was one uh, Reds developed pitcher um, in a starting rotation. I think was that was that it? Did I get that right? Uh, yeah, you got both those right. Unfortunately, uh, you were right so, on. Yeah, so I, I I love the way that, and I think it sort of goes underappreciated how um, teams' mistakes uh, or I guess team successes can actually have uh, reverberations like really decades later um, that we don't necessarily appreciate. And I think you do a pretty good job showing that um, the Reds' inability to develop starters um, was still kind of affecting them late in the 2000s, uh, the last decade. And so can you go back to what caused that drought or, in your opinion, sort of what led to that drought over that two-decade period? Was there, was there something systemic um, that was leading to this? Yeah, well, I think the easy, uh, the easy culprit here is Marge Schott. She just liked spending on the major league roster, and she especially liked spending on hitters because she liked home runs. She had a, a simplistic understanding, not just of race relations, but of baseball in general. And so she would pay for the hitters, but not the pitchers. And the uh, front office talent that the Reds had just didn't do a good job of identifying these players or pitchers that could develop. Around the 2000s, I think they finally realized, you know, the the Pete Shuricks of the world are not going to cut it. If we're going to compete, we need better pitching. And so they did start drafting pitchers highly, and they did start trading for lots of pitchers. Jim Bowden, by the end of his career, was just a – he could have had his own episode of Hoarders except using pitching prospects instead of, you know, junk. But none of those players turned out. And I think part of the problem, too, was just the development staff. They uh, The Reds cycled through three pitching coordinators in three years at one point in the 2000s. And so really – it's hard to identify, you know, is it, are they bad at drafting? Are they bad at developing? The Reds were bad at all of it, and they didn't have enough resources under Marge Schott or under Carl Lindner, the owner who came next, because there just weren't, there wasn't an ownership that supported the team or wanted any kind of stable environment to develop pitching. And that's why you had those horrific facts you cited off where just the team had no, uh, no homegrown pitching at all for decades. So now coming back to the present, um, you set it up as sort of a choice between Cueto and Latos. Um, I think probably most people, most people, I think would say that Latos is the better, the better, the better pitcher going forward, but not necessarily a better investment given probably the greater cost. So, um, who do you think is the better choice at this point? I don't, it, it's, it's hard for me to speak because as a fan, I love Cueto. Cueto was, he, he was successful before Bailey was. And so after all those bleak years, I mean, you got to remember, even when Mike Leak was drafted, the reason he was drafted by the Reds because we were like, well, we don't have any good young starting pitchers who are available at the major league level. He'll move quickly, and at least we'll have somebody. And then all these guys started to develop it right at the same time. But Cueto was the first one, and Cueto was the most successful one. So my emotional attachment to Cueto and, and his crazy windup are, are pretty hard to step outside of. Uh, if he's healthy this year, if he's tweaked the windup in a way that he won't keep pulling the same muscles, uh, I would say that he's the the one that I would like to see them sign just because, like you said, he'll be cheaper. Latos is a guy who's got the, the longer track, track record and the better health. But 
I, I think the Reds know a lot more about this than I do, and they know a lot more about the people uh, behind the players. And so I would say that whichever one they choose, I, I think they'll make the best choice because it's a really important choice for the next five or seven years. And so you've been following them more closely than I have the past month. What is the storyline around Cueto? I mean, he came back late last year, um, looked good, but obviously his durability was questioned even before it became an issue because of his size. Um, so how, how sort of optimistic are you that he's got 33 starts in his arm this year? Um, I, I don't know that there, there are questions about, he tweaked the windup where, which added a little more deception to it. And there have been some speculation that that keeps leading to the same injuries that keep happening. Some people say that's not the case. He's kind of soft pedaled, whether that's true or not, but there are, he's tried to, he's certainly aware of the injury and there seems to be a program in place to help him be more healthy. Um, that said, it's you know given how bad last season was and given how many different times it happened, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm hopeful that he can make it through a whole season or at least give 25 to 28 starts. But what makes me more than hopeful is that they've got four other really good pitch, starting pitchers. So even if he does miss some time, they'll be able to be all right for this season at least. But then, like you said, that's that's the future. Who's going to, if it's just him, if there's no Latos or those other guys behind it, then that help becomes even more important. And are you optimistic about the, the Tony Singrani all-fastball act continuing to succeed? Um, until it doesn't, I guess. I mean, I, I understand the scouting reservations behind it. They make a lot of sense. Uh, but given the numbers that he's put up, you know, I, I, I guess I, I, I never – I try not to believe Pakoda when it's not on my side, like with Cueto, but Pakoda's certainly on my side with Singrani, so I'm just going to trot the numbers out there and say, oh, yeah, he's, a, he's an all-star, no question. You mentioned uh, that one of the great – one of the great things about having this pitching wealth that they have in their rotation um, is that, you know, you don't sort of turn every minor league arm into the next great hope. So uh, Hoover and Liqueur, uh, as you put it, uh, in the previous generation would have been, you know, that generation's Tomko uh, sort of forced into an opening day starting rotation. Um, but as is, they're both really good relievers. And, and obviously Chapman uh, is, is part of that too. He kind of, uh, it's not just that Dusty wanted him to close, or it's not just that he wanted to close, so that they could afford to let him close because they had such a great rotation. And when I think about the Reds of the last couple of years, um, I mostly think about the bullpen as being just this incredible lights-out bullpen. Um, so I don't have a question exactly, so I guess I'll ask you whether you think they should move Chapman to the rotation. <laughs> well, I uh, i mean, the Reds' bullpen is, is kind of a, a franchise constant, which is great. It's Sparky Anderson did so much to innovate in terms of using matchups and using relievers uh, for shorter durations, which is exciting, except you remember that the only reason he did that is because he didn't have good starting pitching. So the Reds have always had a good bullpen because they needed to have a good bullpen. Um, that said, about the Chapman thing, I did a really long story on Chapman a couple years ago where I talked to 40 or 50 people who knew him and played with him, and they kept talking about the mental issues. And so... Again, I would defer to the Reds and their their knowledge uh, about that. A couple people on the Reds don't talk about Chapman now, but a couple things they said when he first signed was just that, you know, we're a little worried about him being a starting pitcher just because there's a lot more downtime. Whereas if you're in the bullpen, you always have to kind of be on call and, and ready to go, and it keeps you more focused over 162 games. Um, that's a comment that's, you know, a few that was a few years old, even when Chapman started to get into off-the-field trouble, but it's one that stuck with me. And so because the Reds... Uh, know him as a human being better than 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 we do i think i would i'm okay with him in in the bullpen it's it's not it would have been nice to see him 
tried as a starter, but I kind of feel like that ship sailed as well. So given we've got the other good starters, let's uh, let's use him as an effective closer. Brian Price, the new manager, has talked about using him in more high leverage situations and for more than just one inning. That's something that would obviously be a, a great switch and something Dusty Baker would never uh, would never even consider doing. So how how big a, a culture shock or a, a strategy style shock is price going to be for Reds fans who have gotten used to Dusty Baker what do you expect out of him tactically well they're gonna have Reds fans are gonna have to find something new to complain about because Dusty was always the default no matter who who screwed up on any given day we could find a way to connect it connect it back to Dusty but Price has been talking about using more defensive shifts in spring training which is something that's really interesting and and makes sense in an analytical framework uh Given that Price worked under Baker, I'm not sure how much it'll change, but uh, Bronson Arroyo, when he was still with the team late in the season and then when Price was considered, gave Price a really ringing endorsement in the Inquirer and talked about how he's just a smart guy, he's a capable guy, he takes numbers, and he believes in accountability. And that was something that really frustrated people with Baker. I think he was such a player's manager that it seemed that the uh, that the accountability wasn't there. So. I, I don't know how much it'll change, just given that there's some continuity from Price or from Baker to Price. But I like to think that where it matters in terms of tactics, the Reds will be slightly more progressive. I mean, they're they're always going to be a conservative franchise. Castellini is is a solid, stable owner, which feels great after Marge Schott and Carl Lindner. Uh, but maybe they'll be kind of in the middle in terms of that conservative, progressive uh, continuum for franchises. And I think Reds fans would be happy with that. Right, and you made the case in the Times last July that that Castellini might actually be the best owner in baseball. What uh, what do you base that on? Uh, well, I, I just think it's that stability and that idea that he was able to not say, let's try to fix things right away. Let's let's look in how to fix things over the long term. Carl Lindner came in for hard shot and said, well, we've got a new stadium in 2003. Let's get a team. Let's patch together a team that will be good then. And then at the trading deadline in 2003, in this new taxpayer funded stadium, he starts trading off all his resources. And it just shows that there was no plan and no stability. And so Castellini's uh, conservative approach can be a little frustrating. We talked at the beginning about this offseason and how there weren't any splashy moves. Uh, but that that's just what I've come to expect from him as an owner, that he takes his time, he's six, he hires people he believes in, and he gives them the space and the resources to do well with it. And to a lot of baseball fans, that probably doesn't sound that revolutionary. Um, you know, that just sounds like what you would want to be in charge of your uh, franchise. But to them, I'd say, well, you didn't have Martin Schott, who would you know, send reporters to go find something in her house and they'd find swastikas in her drawer or something like that. So when you start with that and you get to Castellini's kind of button down professional approach, well, he seems like a messiah and, and for the Reds franchise in many ways he has been. So one of the reasons why there weren't more moves is the presence of Billy Hamilton uh, around to to fill the hole left by Shinsu Chu's departure is, uh, I mean, Sam and I have both written about Hamilton recently. I think we're both sort of fascinated by him, as is everyone who cares about baseball. Um, is this too much too soon, do you think, to expect him to to fill that center field slot, that leadoff slot? Uh, what do you expect out of him? And, and if things do go south, what is, what is the backup plan? Yeah, I, I, I mean, if he was batting seventh or eighth and playing center field every day, I think it would be a, a every the, the entire conversation about him would be framed differently, and people would be a lot more optimistic, and it would kind of be this grand metaphysical experiment in terms of baseball because he's expected to hit leadoff, and because he's replacing a leadoff hitter who is so proficient at getting on base, it's a lot more nervous or nerve-inducing, I guess. 
I would have loved to see the Reds try to get somebody like Dexter Fowler, stick him in left field, let him hit leadoff, and let Hamilton just kind of do his own thing in that seventh or eighth spot. That, to me, would have made more sense. Um, they didn't do that, so there's a lot more pressure on him. I don't... I honestly don't know. All I know is that I'm really excited to watch it happen. And, you know, every time he gets on base, it's going to be a, it's going to be a thrill ride. Let's just hope he gets on base around, uh, you know, 33, 34 percent of the time. It does seem sort of like, um, I mean, uh, the Reds don't have anything. Well, how to put this? They're, obviously, we were there's we have a we have a fairly broad um, range of players who can hit leadoff these days. I mean, it's not always just the speedy guy. But the Reds don't have anybody remotely uh, like a leadoff hitter. So, mm-hmm. like, it seems like you would have to get sort of extraordinarily bad before they would move him down. I mean, you could, even if he's got a 270 on base percentage, it does seem like between the defense and the speed, he'll be a worthwhile baseball player. But, like, what, Ryan Ludwig's going to move into the leadoff spot? So, who... Who is the second choice? Tri- I mean, is Brandon Phillips the leadoff hitter, if not him? Or is uh, Cozart? I, I don't know what baseball perspective has against uh, Skip Shoemaker. I think you guys are really... <laughs> oh, it, you're, you're absolutely right that, the, that there aren't a lot of good options after Hamilton. Um, I don't, it, I'm kind of sad. I'm, I'm sad for a lot of reasons that Ryan Hannigan isn't there. But I'm also sad because it would have been fascinating to watch a guy that slow hit lead. He might have been the best option had he still been on. Yeah. But I, I mean... Hamilton is a guy who can adapt, uh, and, and he's a more uh, protean offensive player than I think people give him credit for. Again, I don't know that much about him as a human being, so who knows if this would work, but he would probably be the best option if Price could get him to buy in and say, hey, we know you had 106 RBI last year and you haven't shut up about it, but maybe just try to get on base a little more and let's see what happens. So I, I guess Phillips is plan B, um, but yeah, or, or Skip Shoemaker. <laughs> so. Um, Speaking of Phillips, uh, he is not speaking to the local media these days. Um, meanwhile, Joey Votto is is making videos begging Reds fans to talk to him when they see him around town. Um, I, I'm kind of fascinated by the by the public, you know, by the reputation of these two players, and I, everything is sort of filtered through the the Twitter lens for me. So it's hard for me to to really internalize how Reds fans feel about both of these players. Uh, I mean, is is Vado a beloved player? Is Are people actually mad about his, his passivity at the plate? Or is that something that bothers the local media more so than, than the local fans? Yeah. I think Reds fans who are kind of analytically inclined love Votto I, I I fully believe there will never be a baseball player I love as much as I love Joey Votto right now um, but in terms of the fans at large it, it is kind of surprising that he's not more of a he, he's never reached that Pete Rose or even Johnny Bench level where he's a, a signature player for the franchise I did a story once where I interviewed like 120 Reds fans because the, the attendance is it's gotten a lot better under Castellini but I think one thing you can see is that even though he's done everything the right way to help the franchise do better, the attendance is still not what you would want it to be. Cincinnati is not the baseball town people uh, in the national media like to say it is. But I did a story about that, talked to more than 100 fans, and consistently they liked Bruce and and, uh, Phillips more than they liked Votto, which I just you know, couldn't understand because Votto's a historically great player. And, and I think just a, a fascinating personality. Just, you know, you talk to him and, or you hear him talk in interviews and he's talking about organic farming or Nate Silver's latest book. That's, that's not something most baseball players talk about in my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but for whatever reason, the fans 
seem to can, or drift more to other players. The thing that really drives me crazy is the local media and the way they have covered this. Um, I mean, when you have a smaller uh, metropolitan area like Cincinnati, you're going to have this. But Paul Doherty, a local columnist, is a guy who's really just used 1960s ideas to claw bravado about RBI and being a man's man and stepping up to the plate. And it's just hogwash. And I think a lot of uh, local fans... Uh, you know, sort of follow that and and believe that, and that's the that's the perception Votto is pushing back against. It might not be regular fans who are frustrated with him, but some of the really uh, crusty and curmudgeonly members of the Cincinnati media. I don't know. They just they want Pete Rose back on the field, and since that's not going to happen, they're going to make Votto pay for it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you about the attendance because you you wrote that piece for Cincinnati Magazine. I guess it was July two thousand eleven. And uh, at the time, or at least during the 2011 season, the Reds ranked 10th out of 16 teams in the National League in attendance. Since then, the Reds have obviously been been very successful, uh, but attendance has not been up all that much. It's it's up a bit, but they still have ranked 10th in each of the past two seasons. So, what what uh, did you conclude about the 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 lack of attendance? Well, it's I mean, first of all, it's just. It's really frustrating because you look at Milwaukee when they had their best teams, or certainly St. Louis in their current uh, their current run. That these are small markets that are able to draw really high numbers. And Castellini would put that money back into the payroll. He's he has taken the money, and I you know I've crunched the numbers. Other people crunch the numbers. He's taken every dollar in new revenue and put it into making the on field product better. I think Cincinnati is more a football town than a baseball town. I God knows why. Not just the Bengals' lack of success, but the human being who owns the Bengals is uh, not something I would want to root for. But the team cares more about that, and they care a lot about college basketball. Xavier and Cincinnati will both be in the NCAA tournament this March, and and both are really good teams. So I think the Reds are something that matters to the city's identity in terms of something, you know, if you're from Cincinnati, you can bring up the Reds or say, hey, the Reds are there. But for whatever reason, the Reds aren't the thing that people go and spend their money on or actually, you know, go to games. And, and it's, it's frustrating. It's, it's not apathy. It's not that bad because they still have great TV ratings and they still have great radio ratings. But in terms of getting people actually to go to the ballpark and it's cheap, it's, it's, it's not the greatest ballpark, but it's a nice ballpark. It's a great experience. They just haven't had the success. And it's frustrating to me. I'm sure it's much more frustrating to, to Bob Castellini, given all the work he's done to improve that. Mm-hmm. And one more player-specific question. Sam, Sam and I both have a, a soft spot for Ryan Hannigan, and he seemed like a, a trade candidate years ago when the Reds had a lot of young catching talent coming up. And one of the reasons why he wasn't traded at the time uh, was probably Devin Mesoraco's sort of slow development uh, once he arrived in the major leagues. He has not really broken through Um yet and yet he is he is slated now to be the starter is he ready to take a step forward do you believe i i absolutely believe so uh defense and pitch calling hopefully he's learned a lot from hannigan because hannigan was so strong in those areas Mm -hmm. but offensively i just think that if you look at the statistics in terms of when catchers develop they always take a little longer because the grueling physical nature of the job but just also because they have so many other things to deal with um I, i actually think people haven't talked a lot about this but i hope that price's manager will help there because now you've got somebody who's 
first focus is going to be on the pitching and the play calling and, and all those issues. And so if he can help Mesoraco feel more confident and more calm in those areas and focus more on the hitting, um, I could see kind of a, the same kind of maturation process that Matt Wieters had. Is Mesoraco ever going to be the hitter we had hoped for based on his double A and triple A numbers? No, and neither is Wieters. But can Mesoraco take a step forward and be a a first division starter, maybe a borderline all-star. Yeah, I think that can happen in the next couple of years. I, I, I'm way too optimistic about the Reds, but I, I'm optimistic <laughs> about this as well. I think Mesoraco is going to have a really strong year, and I think the team will too. All right. Well, give us your way too optimistic uh, predict, prediction, then win total and, and finish in the NL Central. Um, I think they're going to win 92 or 93 games, and I think they're going to. I think the Cardinals will probably still win the division, but I think it'll be an interesting race between the two of them. And I think the Pirates, no offense to the lovely citizens of Pittsburgh, are going to be in a in a distant third place. Uh huh. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Craig. Yeah, it's my pleasure, guy. So people can uh, go read, follow all of your work at craigfearman.com. That's F-E-H-R-M-A-N. And keep track of all your appearances in various media. You are working on a book. That's right. It's a book about presidents and the books they've written. And uh, it's going to come out uh, in the next year or two, probably, from Simon & Schuster. Cool. All right. Uh, So thanks, Craig. And now uh, please support our sponsor, Baseball Reference. Go to baseballreference.com. Subscribe to the Play Index. Use the coupon code BP for a $6 discount on a one-year subscription. And now stay tuned for Nick, who will talk to John Fay. Welcome to Drop Third Strike. I'm Nick Wheatley-Schaller, and I'll be interviewing beat writers, columnists, and broadcasters from around the country, getting their perspective on the teams they cover. I'm here with John Fay of the Cincinnati Inquirer. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks. The Reds made it to the wild card game last year, but they lost to the Pirates. They've now made it to the playoffs three years out of the past four years, but haven't made it to the NLCS in any of those three years. Uh, how confident are the Reds that they'll be back in the playoffs this year? And do they think that the team has what it takes to make a run if they get to October? Yeah, I think they do. I, I think they're a pretty confident team. Uh, I think the key for them and, and what the goal is is obviously not to m- just make the playoffs. They haven't advanced. They uh, lost last year in the wild card, and then the two previous years they lost in the first round. The the one thing that kind of sticks in in their mind is in 2012 when they had a, a two-game to none lead and then mm-hmm. ended up blowing it to the Giants who went on to win the World Series. So, you know, they have a new manager. I think that's why Dusty Baker lost his job because they hadn't advanced and, and they, they finished poorly last year. So I, I think there's a pretty high bar for this team. Um, making the playoffs isn't good enough. They, they've got to get in in advance to, to have any measure of, uh, of success or any you know, to consider a successful season. How much pressure is there on new manager Brian Price to see that success in his first season? Well, I, I don't think there's any tremendous pressure. I think he'll be back no matter what happens, mm-hmm. probably, and he's got a three-year contract. But it, it's kind of rare that a guy comes in and takes over a team that's won 90 games three out of four years and, and has made the playoffs. Uh, first, certainly a first-year manager. Um and uh, Brian's a smart guy. I think he's well prepared for this job. But again, the bar set pretty high. If, if he wins 89 games and doesn't make the playoffs, is the season considered a failure? And that's that's a pretty good season in in most people's minds. So I think uh, again, the bar is just high for a first year manager. Yeah, I mean the only comparable new manager I can think of this season is um, Brad Ausmus with the Tigers, although Jim Leland retired as opposed to have get, getting fired as uh, Dusty Baker did. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a different situation. If, if the Reds had gone to the playoffs in, in advance like the Tigers did and, and Dusty retired, yeah, there's probably less pressure. But um, And I, I don't think Brian's shying away from it. I think he knows what that, that is. I think he's brought some different um, ideas in. He, he's he's going to be uh, strategically uh, a bit different than Dusty Baker. He has a different personality. And I think that Everyone would give Dusty credit for turning this franchise around. They had lost uh, nine straight years when he finally got them to um, to a winning season and, and in 2010, and then, and then they kind of continued it. But the fact that they haven't advanced in the playoffs, uh, that wasn't good enough for ownership, and that ultimately cost him his job. One point of strategy that um, the new that Brian Price might use is the new defensive shifts. So how might how might he incorporate those? Well, I, I think we'll see it more in the regular season. It, it's just hard to judge that kind of stuff in in the uh, in in spring training because a lot of times the guys that are hitting are guys they have no book on or they're minor leaguers. You have particularly early. I mean, yeah. Right now, most um, starters are playing five innings. So they, I, I noticed they use a little bit against Cleveland. Their left-handed hitters they they shifted and the. the with the Reds, uh, Jay Bell came over. He was the hitting coach in, in Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh used them a great deal. I think the Reds will use them some. Uh, the difference between the Reds and the Pirates is the Reds are a good defensive team with pretty much range. I think the Pirates use it a little bit to overcome some shortcomings. I think the Reds will use it more to take advantage of their, their good fielders and, and the range. How does losing Shinsu Chu to Texas change the complexion of this lineup? Well, it... it you talked about pressure on Brian Price. Yeah. Billy Hamilton's going to be the leadoff guy and play center field. I, I, I don't. Everyone in the organization is fine about him playing center field. He'll be better than since Sue Chu, oh, yeah. just because of his foot speed. He's, he's very athletic. He's got a good arm. Um, there's people who think he was the best uh, center fielder in AAA last year, and it was the first year he played it. So I think he's going to be fine on that account. But he's a guy who hit 256 with a 308 on base percentage at AAA. I think in a perfect world, they would have given him another year, uh, at least to start in AAA, and, and brought someone in, but they weren't able to do that. So he's going to be out there on opening day and uh, in sink or swim. So I think the one good thing with the Reds is he's, he's had a very good spring. Uh, he's, I think he's hitting three thirty three, and You know, it's only 15 or 20 at-bats. Uh, I think it's but he hasn't struck out yet. He's um, walked four times. He's had a couple bun hits, and he's just been able to put the ball in play. Last year, he really struggled in spring early. He looked overwhelmed. He hasn't looked that way. I think that's a really good sign because if he had come in and struggled real early in spring, I think it would have hurt his confidence. And and they really don't have a, a, a really good plan B. So um, they're going, to, they're going to have a different look. Chu was second in the National League in on-base percentage. Billy Hamilton's not going to get on nearly that much, but he he just has a, a different dimension. He's the he's a guy that sold 155 bases last year. We mm-hmm. we he's six for six this spring, and um and on at least two of those, the catcher threw the ball into center field, and he ended up on third. So it's it's going to be a different kind of team, but um. You know, I, they really didn't have any choice. They they tried to trade for Brett Gardner. They didn't get him. They tried to sign Brady Sizemore. They didn't get him. So Billy Hamilton's the guy. 
what's going to be the key for him to get on base enough? Obviously, with that speed, he can really be a game cha- game changer, but he can't do that if he's not on base. Will he be focusing on getting getting that walk rate up, uh, redu- reducing strikeouts? You said that he'd only struck out once so far in spring training. Yeah, I, I think he just has to put the ball in play. He's uh, he, he said the other day he was 3-3 down the first baseline. It's that's that's a routine grounder. That's pretty tough yeah. to to throw him out. Um, and he you know he's worked on his bunting. He uh, the other night against uh, Los Angeles, he bunted it really hard right at Gonzalez. Or, or, yeah, Gonzalez. I'm sorry, it wasn't Gonzalez. The first base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gonzalez. I'm losing my mind here. But it it wasn't a good bunt, but he beat it out. It wasn't even close because he he's just so fast down the line. I think. He's, he's got to look at that. They, they had him come out early, work on his bunting. They had him work with the line of the shields about just his approach to lead off. And I think if, if he could be league average and on base percentage, the Reds would be absolutely thrilled mm-hmm. because of his speed, the things he does. He distracts pitchers. Um, he talked about shifts. The, most teams play a shift on both Jay Bruce and, and Joey Votto. If Billy Hamilton's on, on first, you can't have the third baseman playing 35 feet off the bag because Billy Hamilton, if he steals second, he, he's going to beat most third basemen to, mm-hmm. to the bag on, uh, with a running start. So I think that's something kind of interesting to watch. And um, it's it's he's a competitive kid. And if you look at his career, he struggled his first year at almost every level, and then at some point he, he figured it out and, and did well. So that's what they're hoping. That last year um, at AAA was a little bit of an aberration, and that. He can pick it up some and, 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 and put up about those numbers in the major leagues. I think if he was at 256 and 308, they, they could live with that very easily. Jay Bruce has been a reliable right fielder since his breakout season in 2010. He's hit the ball hard and provided great defense and a plus throwing arm. In, 20, in 2010 and 2013, he managed to run a high BABIP thanks to his line drive rates being above 20%. How important is it for him to focus on hitting the ball on the line, and how does this impact his ability to hit for power? Well, I, I, say, I think with Jay Bruce, what, what he will tell you is when he gets in trouble is when he chases pitches out of the strike zone. Mm-hmm. I, I, my anecdotal evidence with him is when he's in a, a slump, when he starts walking some, he comes out of it. And I think you know, pitch recognition and that kind of thing, I, people are going to try to get him out with sliders, he just has an electric bat. He he almost hit the ball out of Goodyear Park the other night. Um, just just a, a, a monster shot. If if he can put the ball in play, cut down a strikeout rate a little bit, he's going to have a terrific year. Um, I think if if he could hit 280, um, walk a little more, he, he could have an MVP type season because he he has that power, that natural power, that that easy swing. Um, the guy that played here that the equivalent of, of course, he's not as, nearly as good as him, but he, it's kind of like Ken, Ken Griffey Jr., that, mm-hmm. that that sweet swing, and when he makes contact, the ball just jumps off his bat. So I think uh, the one thing about Jay Bruce is people kind of, he's been around so long that you think he's older than he is. No, he's, he's younger than <laughs> Todd Frazier. He's younger than Zach Cozart, but he's, he just got to the big leagues early. I think he's matured. Um, he's the guy that I think will eventually be the leader on this team, if not this year. So, yeah, I, I think if he can just get a little better, he'll be one of the better players in the, in the National League. Yeah, he'll be t- turning 27 on April 3rd, so really remarkably young if you think about it. 
Yeah, he's he's a guy that up until last year, uh, he increased his home runs every year for mm-hmm. for five straight years. And in the, in the the first year, he hit I think twenty one. That's a pretty difficult thing to do. And uh, he, he, I think he had his best year in a lot of ways last year. As you mentioned, he's a, he's a very good right fielder. Uh, he he keeps guys to singles on balls. It, it's really hard to hit a double in. Mm-hmm the right field against Jay Bruce in great American ballpark. He gets the ball quick. He's got that big arm, so people just don't run on him. And, and he's, a, he's a guy who kind of relishes the role of being a red, set an example, and although he's young, I, I do think he's, he's moved more into that leadership role. Bruce was the Reds' first-round pick in 2005. Um, their their first-round pick from 2007, catcher Devin Mesoraco, is still trying to live up to his potential. He got an increase in playing time last year. He's still just 25 years old, but he struggled to get on base in the just under 600 career plate appearances he has gotten at the big league level. Can he hit well enough to become a legitimate starting catcher? I think so. As you mentioned, um, his playing time increased at the year before he was playing so little that it was really hard for him to get in the groove. Mm-hmm. He, he's the guy that they think can hit 20 home runs or more than 20 home runs in, in the big leagues. He's very athletic for a catcher. He's a, he's a strong kid. It'll be, he, he improved greatly from the year before to last year. And now that he's the regular guy, Ryan Hannigan's gone. Uh, it'll be interesting to see the, the potential is obviously there that they like him and, his makeup, his leadership ability, the way he's worked with pitchers. I think the key that, that sold them on him last year is that he worked better with the pitchers. He was the guy that caught Mike Leake and, and Matt Latos, who arguably had the, the two best seasons of, of the guys in the rotation. So I think that, that convinced them that they could pull the trigger on, on, on trading Hamilton and, and making him the guy and then bring in Brian Pena as a less costly backup. So Again, the potential's there, but until you do it, you you never know. But I I think uh, the Reds are are very confident that he can do it. Over on the pitching side of things, Homer Bailey took a big step up last year, had career highs in strikeout and ground ground ball rate, a career low home run rate. He was rewarded with a six-year, $100 million extension. How can he keep those numbers up over the length of his new contract? Well, I think the, the thing with Homer is he, he got healthy. I think early in his career, it obviously has tremendous potential, tremendous stuff. You don't throw two no-hitters if you, you don't have great stuff. He, he's gotten stronger every year. He, he's a guy that is throwing harder in the seventh inning than he is in the first inning. He's a, he's a hard worker. He's kind of that bulldog-type guy. Um, and the knock on him early in his career was he was stubborn. I think uh, he bought into what Brian Price did with him as, as a pitching coach and his, his off-speed stuff, he, he can get it over more effectively, um, and, and that's the key. I think if he can continue to do that, he, he has a plus fastball. You know, he, he can hit up to 97, and again, he, he gets stronger as the game goes on. So I, I think it's, it's just more of the same with him, and if he stays healthy, I think he'll have a, a really good year. It was definitely a good sign for him to see that fastball velocity tick up. It had been at around 92 from 2010 to 2012, and he got it back up to 94 last year over the full season. Yeah, I would I would say from 2011 to now, he's put on like 25 pounds. Probably wow. he's a he's a he's a he's a big kid. He's you know he's six foot four. Uh, I, I would think he's about 
225 now. When he when he broke in, uh, he was a guy that like Jay Bruce broke in very early. He probably only weighed about 200 pounds. So I think he, he's he's added that muscle and he's done the things to keep his shoulder healthy. He he said, um, I'm thinking in, in 2010, he he dealt with pain almost every start, and in the last two years, he's been pretty pain free. So that, that's for many pitchers, that's a big thing. If you're healthy, it's, it makes it a lot easier to do your job. Another guy who's been good but had some injury troubles is Johnny Cueto. He threw 217 innings in 2012 and went to the DL three separate times last year, all due to shoulder injuries. How vital is having a healthy Cueto in the rotation, and can he? How good can he be if he pitches another full season? Well, I think that's that may be the biggest, other than Hamilton. That's the biggest question. If mm-hmm. if Cueto can be healthy, he, he was a very good pitcher for. He's been a very good pitcher for four years. I think his ERA over those four years is two nine two, which is up there in maybe the top four in, in the National League. But again, I, I think one of the problems last year was it was a, a lap thing, which is a big muscle, and he would tell them, oh, "I'm ready," you know, and then he'd go out there and, and kind of re-injure it. So mm-hmm. something that probably could have been taken care of if he if he spent. Uh, you know, two more weeks on the on the disabled list became a recurring problem, and, and you know that that's the key with him. If he's healthy, he's a good pitcher. He's a uh, he's a real battler. I think the stat on him that just blows me away, and I, I can't quote it perfectly, but it's I think people are like one for twenty eight with the bases loaded against him, and over the last two or three years, he just he has the ability to put the ball where he wants it when he's on. And even last year when he was hurt, when he was healthy and pitching, he was pretty good. I think his ERA was, his ERA was under three. Mm-hmm. But, again, he just couldn't stay healthy. And um, that's the key. I think it was a good sign for the Reds today that he went out and pitched four innings because he had been, he was pretty bad in his last start. So from a confidence standpoint, for him to, to go out and, and have a good outing is a big deal. And, again, it's just it's a matter of him staying healthy. Last year, Tony Singrani became just the seventh pitcher to throw 100 innings while throwing 80% or more fastballs. Um, Singrani's projected to open the year this year in the rotation. Should we expect to see the 24-year-old begin to expand his repertoire a bit, or will he continue that approach? I think you'll see a lot of fastballs. I don't I don't know that he'll throw that many. Uh, Brian Price, we, we've talked to him about that, and, and he said, you know, his fastball is just a special pitch, and it and it it doesn't have to be his best fastball to be effective. You know, there's times when he's 91, 92, and he can still get people out with it. I think his breaking ball and his changeup are uh, key to it. As people see you more, they're going to get, they're going to figure out your fastball, no matter how good it is. So, I, I think that's a big part of it. And another part of it with him is his health. He 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 uh, missed some time with a bad back last year. It was one of those deals where he probably pitched another week or so or 10 days before he told him about it so that that's mm-hmm. something they tried to stress with them he's worked real hard to uh in the off season to stay in shape and, and keep that back strong but you know i actually i expect him to have a pretty good year he's a, he's a little bit he doesn't throw like mike leak he throws a lot harder and, and, and he's different in that way but the thing that he has in common with mike leak is he's a terrific athlete he can really run he gets bunt base hits and, and things like that and and in the end, that that kind of helps you out. That helps you out a great deal in uh, in getting deeper into games if they're not afraid to uh, um, 
put you up there to hit and things like that. And, and the, the fielding aspect is just uh, you see it with Mike Leake and Bronson Arroyo was another example of that. If, if a guy's a good fielder, it really helps him um, as a pitcher. Jeff Francis signed a minor league deal with the Reds this winter. He had done the same thing in 2012. He ended up pitching 77 innings in AAA, then left and went back to Colorado. Does he have a better chance of getting some major league playing time with the Reds this time around? If he does, things haven't gone well. I think if, you know, <laughs> Matt Latos right now, is uh, he hasn't thrown in a game yet, but they're right now they're projecting him to be able to start on April 6th. I think uh, someone else would have to be hurt in the rotation. that They, they trade, traded for Phillip. Holmberg, I think he's the, probably the, the sixth starter. Mm-hmm. And they've been using um, Alfredo Simon as a starter in spring training in, in that, that case. Simon has pretty good stuff. He's a big guy. He's been very effective. He's kind of that long guy in the bullpen for the Reds. So I, I, I think uh, Jeff Francis is there is, is deep insurance. I, 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 <laughs> I think they would, they would really like to avoid having him go out there for them. Yeah. Uh, when Brian Price was signed, was hired as the Reds' new manager, there were some rumors that Araldis Chapman could finally be remo- moved to the rotation. That news has quieted since the Reds announced that he would be staying in the closer role. However, Bryce stated back in De- December that Chapman might get a chance to pitch more innings instead of just going one inning every game. How could they use Chapman a bit differently in 2014? Well, in, in spring training, I think his last two outings, he went two innings. But uh-huh. They're looking at that possibility to bring him in in the eighth sometimes, um, maybe even the seventh on occasion. Um, and that was the thing at, at the end of the year when, when they had their collapse. They lost their last six games and then lost that playoff game. He didn't pitch. So I, I think Brian's looking at ways to use him more, to get more out of him. Um, you know, when a left-hander's leading off, the eighth inning, why, why not bring the guy in? Yeah. He's pretty much unhittable for, for left-handed batters, and uh, you know he's a, he's a big, strong guy. And uh, yeah, I think I think they have to look to get more out of him when when a guy's that talented and he's throwing sixty innings and sometimes going a week without pitching. It's 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 just a waste of talent. Yeah, he's he's seen his velocity decrease a lot in past times that he's tried to start. But you would imagine that if he's just pitching two innings, he won't see as big of a drop off. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. And he's been really thrown hard in spring training. His first outing, he was he was consistently at a hundred and hit a hundred and one. His very first outing in the spring, I talked to some scouts and they were just wowed by how hard he threw. So uh, yeah, I, I, he's he's the guy. When, when he's on, he's going to throw twelve or thirteen pitches in the inning and maybe strike out the side. So I think you can count. If he has three days rest, you can count on him throwing 25, 30 pitches. So that'll be one of the really interesting things to watch is, is how Brian uses him. And then at the same time, it's, it's always, there's always a little bit of a catch-22 because he throws 30 pitches on Tuesday, and then Wednesday you have a, a, a two-to-one lead to protect with a, the top of the order coming up. So is he less effective then? So I think it's something they have to look at it and, and, and try to figure out. I, you know, he's he's gone back to back days a lot, but he hasn't gone back to back days where he pitched two innings and then the next day. So again, that's something that that'll really play out during the season because you just can't get a feel for it in, in spring training much. All right, John, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. And no problem. Thanks. All right, take care. That was John Fay of the Cincinnati Inquirer.
You can read John at Cincinnati.com slash sports slash Reds or follow him on Twitter at John Fayman. Tomorrow I'll be discussing the Texas Rangers with Jeff Wilson of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Thanks for listening.